0: Thanks for checking out the Human Performance Outliers podcast. In case you haven't noticed, we are now up on Patreon. You can find us at patreon.com backslash HPOPodcast. You can also just click on the link in the podcast notes and it'll take you right to our page. For the listeners that have already joined us, thank you so much. Your support is greatly appreciated. Uh, We have some pretty cool goodies that we're rolling out for the Patreon supporters, including a front-of-the-line Q&A, some early podcast release options, as well as the chance to even join the show. So please consider checking out that page if you haven't yet. Also, if you do listen to us on a podcast hosting site, if you have the option, please consider subscribing. By subscribing, you'll get the most up-to-date episode as soon as it's released. Thank you very much, and enjoy the show. Let's do it. <laughs> All right, man. Hey, uh, Zach,
1: are we recording so we can we, we catch some of this, this yeah I just, banter on?
0: I just hit it, so we're... We got everything we need. I can take anything out right. too, so all that'd be good. Right. Well, you know, hey man, Ted,
1: Ted you know, you and know, you've been on a gazillion podcasts. I've been on gazillion Podcast. We all, we know, everybody knows our our kind of story, basically. You were kind of a a, a veganist, vegetarian dude, and then you kind of figured the shit out, and you got you got lean, and you figured all out, and, and we know the story. It's a typical story, and that's cool stuff. You went to Loma Linda. You you were with the, you 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 got brainwashed, or sort of you were in that environment, and you figured out it didn't matter. But you got so much other good. stuff. I mean, I don't want to spend time because we only have limited time, and I want to I want to pick into the, the all the good stuff you got, the the brain power you brought, because you've been looking at this stuff for like twenty years now, is what what I understand. So you've been around a long time, and you're, you know, you're kind of you know, you you're kind of looking at these guys that are, you know, and this is the thing, you know, you, you got the leanest, fittest, strongest guys on the planet, bodybuilders, and you're like, what the hell are they doing? You know? And they know how to get lean. I mean, if there's nothing else, they know how to do that. And so it's just like, well, that's kind of a no brainer, you know, and, and not everybody fits in that category, but I've got just a couple of comments. One is everybody makes fun of you and they make fun of me sometimes. because we, we sometimes get up there, we, we, we throw take our shirt off we say, look, we're lean. And people will say, well, that's just, that That doesn't matter. You know, I get people tell me being lean and being muscular, it has nothing to do with health. You know, they point to the one guy they know that died, that had a heart attack and was lean. And, you know, to me, it's like saying, well, yeah, I know a 90-year-old guy that smoked 20 packs, you know, had a 100-pack year history of smoking. And, you know, it's just like, of course it has to do with being fit. Of course it has to do with health, being healthy. What do you say about that? Or is it just... Uh, is it just, you know, you're, you're lean and athletic and muscular, but you're really sick on the inside. Is that, is that, something, is there something to that? Or am I just making that up?
2: Well, you know, I've actually done a ton of research into, uh, lab values in competitive bodybuilders. And, uh, you know, if you get too thin, your, your testosterone gets nuked and you just feel like crap, but, but on the way down to being super lean and aesthetic, uh, the lab values are spectacular, like absolutely spec freaking tacular. You know, um, everything you can measure looks phenomenal in these people. So I- I'm not really convinced that people are. Um, looking fit as hell, and then inside there's something really wrong. Uh, the same thing goes with my practice. You know, I've just for twenty years, I've basically had an unending stream of people walk in front of me, and I got to see what they looked like, what their body composition was, and what their labs looked like, and then talk to them about their diet. So I, I feel like I'm getting a pretty good flavor uh, of you know what what people look like, and then what their labs are going to be, and um, for the most part, <clears throat> you're not going to look like the picture of health and have some
1: sort of metabolic problem that nobody knows about. You know what I mean? Well, I know you're a big proponent of the waist to height ratio. And I think it, and, and I know you've I've, I've, you've said that, you know, you know, you would rather have that information more than just about just about anything else. You know, we've got a lot of high power tools, expensive tools, expensive tests. And, you, you know, you can basically take a tape measure and learn probably 80% of what you need to know about someone's medical, uh, metabolic health with, 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 with just that simple tool. Absolutely. Yeah. I love that. Zach, now Zach, you know, cause Zach and Zach, you know, this is kind of this outlier podcast, you know, Zach and I, and I would argue you were all on this kind of the fringe of kind of normal. You know, this is a thing, normal. What would you say? I, I, cause I talked about this on a couple podcasts as far as, you know, when we look at normal healthy, let's just let's just use males because we're all males, male body fat levels. You know, I you know, when when, when we get down on the competitive bodybuilding stage, when we're, you know, in that four to six percent body fat range, you know, the really high-end guys are even maybe even, you know, pushing close into the three percent. You know, maybe, maybe not, but I mean that again is not a natural state. It's not a you, you can't walk around like that for for you know every day of the week. And so what 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 would you say? Is a normal range for a normal, healthy, just sort of normal, healthy guy walking around to be at?
2: Oh, I mean, target for me for most men to look and feel the very best ten to twelve percent, definitely.
1: I think that's the sweet
2: spot, really.
1: Yeah, I would, yeah. I would agree. For me, you know, like I said, for me, when I get and I can get leaner if I want to, but I don't perform as well. I just notice it. Right. You know, I just I lose strength. I just don't feel as good. Let me, let me go into just another quick you've got two things and I, I know you got more than this but two things that I think are really interesting concepts and I'll let Zach get in here because I know Zach's got a lot of questions <laughs> for you but um, one is you talk about something called the personal fat threshold I don't know if you coined that term I know you're the first person I heard talking about that can you explain that to people that may not understand that and what the what the significance is, is for that
2: yeah absolutely I would love to I did not coin this term this is actually in the medical literature the personal fat threshold is basically as fat as you can easily get. And this is completely genetic. So you basically genetically inherit how fat you can get. And, uh, you know, for example, people throughout Southeast Asia cannot get that fat. You don't see these people on my 600-pound life, right? These people can maybe gain 10, 20 pounds of subcutaneous fat, and that's it. And then what happens is you have fat spill over. So you fill up your subcutaneous fat stores first, If you have genetically low personal fat threshold, that's not a lot of fat. That's, you know, 10 pounds or something. And, uh, you know, throughout Southeast Asia, these personal fat thresholds are just super low. And then what happens is when you've filled up all your fat cells as easily as uh, the easy to fill fat cells in your subcutaneous, they spill over into visceral fat and then ectopic fat. And then your insulin just starts to climb because this fat is trying to go back out into your circulation like an overfilled balloon and insulin has to shove it back out of your in, uh, circulation into your cells so once you've hit your pa- personal fat threshold and exceeded it your insulin starts to climb now you've got insulin resistance now your whole body's at war with itself none of your cells want any energy they don't want more fat they don't want more glucose uh, all your cells are just refusing it and basically whatever tissue in your body is the least insulin sensitive uh, or insulin, least insulin resistant, loses and all the energy gets shoved in there. You know what I mean? And so it's just like a merry-go-round from hell. And uh, personal fat threshold is really, really best demonstrated by my patients with lipodystrophy. This is a genetically inherited condition where you have almost no subcutaneous fat. And this is the one situation where uh, these people sort of look ripped. They have no subcutaneous fat, um, because they just really have no fat cells under the skin. But even in their situation, once they get insulin resistant, which is almost hundred percent, their abdominal circumference will go up. And if I get out a tape measure and measure the abdominal circumference of one of my lipodystrophy patients, it will be way too high, even though they're arms and legs are totally ripped like a bodybuilder. They have no subcutaneous fat. Every bit of fat gets stored viscerally and then ectopically, and they're almost 100% horribly insulin-resistant and diabetic um, just right off the bat because they just don't have any place to put fat. And, and that's what's up with the personal fat threshold. Uh, the, the, the most dramatic experiment I can find um, in medical literature are these lipodystrophy mice where these mice have no subcutaneous fat. They're 100% diabetic because you just feed them any carbs and fat together and they immediately have no place to store the fat, right? The, The carbs displace fat oxidation. The fat has no place to go. Bam, they have visceral fat. They have ectopic fat. They're instantly horribly insulin resistant and diabetic. And you can cure their insulin resistance overnight by implanting subcutaneous fat under their skin and connecting it to blood supply. So now they have a place to put fat and overnight their horrific insulin resistance and diabetes is cured, basically proving the fact that insulin resistance is about running out of fat storage. I mean, there's just no question about it whatsoever.
0: So then someone who is less prone or is less able to add some of that subcutaneous fat are they just much more prone to insulin resistance then since their, their quote-unquote storage supply, I guess, is smaller?
2: Not uh, eating a homo sapien appropriate diet, no. But, but in the modern food environment where protein is 14 to 15% globally and 12.5% in America, these people are effed, right? They're going to run out of fat storage just immediately there's they don't even have a chance this is why the entirety of southeast asia is pre-diabetic or diabetic i mean they've got a like just a major league problem it's uh it's extreme
1: ted one thing you just said there that kind of shocked me is that you said that the global protein intake is around 15 percent, and yet the u.s intake is only 12 percent. so we are actually from a percent ratio lower in protein than the rest of the world even though we are "Quote unquote prodigious uh, eaters of meat." That's that's pretty shocking to me. Is that where Where did you get those Where did you get those figures from? That's interesting. I mean, I, I don't discount it because we eat so much other garbage in addition too. But I'm just shocked to find that out.
2: Yeah, I mean, this is all you know government data that's readily available. But basically, um, global protein percentage is about 14 to 15 percent of energy calories. And over the past 50 years of the obesity epidemic. It slid down to twelve and a half percent in America, and so we're we're kind of winning um, with low protein. There's a, uh, and if you look at the uh, the optimal fattening ratio, you can get the absolute fattest right at about ten to twelve percent protein. So we are approaching optimum fattening on our protein percent. It's just about perfect for we're getting as fat as possible we're, we're really nailing that one
0: yeah and then you throw in just the the types of foods people are eating in place of what otherwise would probably be protein then you know it's, it seems like a perfect storm like we've used the reference in previous episodes like the donut is essentially the perfect storm for getting fat because you know it's basically devoid of any usable protein in a holistic sense and then it's also loaded with some of the worst fats you can eat as well as you know just pure sugar basically
2: I love that and and I have done a ton of research on obesogenic rodent chow and the exact formulas you use to get animals the very fattest. So all of these labs like you know Harlan and these uh, these rodent lab chow companies uh, we'll sell you a chow that's guaranteed to make your rodent as fat and diabetic as possible. Like it's literally they're paid to make these rodents uh, o- insulin resistant, overweight, visceral fat, obesity, type two diabetes, vascular disease, the whole nine yards. And they always do it with this like nine, 10 percent protein and then 45 percent fat and carbs each or maybe 50% carbs 40% fat or 50% fat 40% carbs but it, it's right around the 45 45 fat and carb combo with protein held down at 10% uh, diluting protein so you have to eat you know twice as much to get enough protein because rodents self select for about 23% protein if they're left to their own devices mm-hmm. so you just you just crank up the fat and carbs together you keep the protein low not too low, but nice and low, so they have to really overeat um and it's just the perfect storm and we we've just approached that in this country like we're we're just we're almost perfect in our obesogenic ratios. Do Donut you, is great.
0: do you think that like part of that kind of overfeeding stimulus is because the body is searching for that Twenty-ish percent range of protein, and then when it's not getting it, it's like, "Well, give me more food, maybe I can get it up there." But then it's just coming in with you know those really skewed kind of ratios, and it's just this kind of perfect storm for for gaining weight in the search for extra protein.
2: (laughs) Absolutely, so there are a bunch of studies that show that um, a lot of mammals just literally eat to get enough protein. Primates are huge for just eating. To get enough protein, and you're basically going to eat until you get enough protein. If you're eating a a protein diluted food like, you know, French fries, which are seven percent protein, you're going to massively overeat carbs and fats on your way to getting enough protein. So, like. You know, worldwide hunter-gatherer macro estimations—it's uh, about 19 to 35 percent globally estimated macros for hunter-gatherers. So they're all way over. You know, they're over 20 percent. Most of them are over 30 percent. And then you've got the U.S. down at 12.5 percent, and we're basically eating to protein satiety. So I mean, that's just a just a massive problem. Honestly, that that could explain the entire obesity epidemic single-handedly but I think there's another factor which is the combination of carbs and fats together which has been shown to drive hyperphagia and actually create reverse satiety so if you eat carbs and fats together frequently your satiety is is like negative so you combine the two protein dilution And then carbs and fats together on a frequent basis. The carbs shut off fat oxidation. All your fat gets stored. Pretty soon you fill up all your adipocytes because you're never oxidizing fat. Then you hit your personal fat threshold. Then it spills over to visceral and ectopic fat. Then you've got insulin resistance. Then you've got every chronic disease known to man. Um, It all starts with protein dilution from high carbs and
1: high fat all day long. Yeah, Ted. since You know, you talked about some of the primates. You know, if we look at some of the primate feeding patterns, and you, know, you look at chimpanzees, they spend about sixty percent of their waking hours actually chewing. You know, trying to get, you know, get enough nourishment from the from the relatively low uh, nutritional food that they eat. You kind of talked about something, and I know you 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 talked about the protein leverage theory theory and the protein uh, energy ratio, which is something you've been talking about recently. Can you you kind of mentioned this? Can you kind of further elaborate on that? Because I, I think it's a very uh, important uh, discussion, and I, and I think you you uh, you you can do it. You, you do a very good job explaining that. So, if you don't mind, explain it for whoever's listening here.
2: Oh, sure. Yeah. Okay. So, there's this whole field of study called nutritional ecology. Uh, nutritional ecology looks at what an organism is supposed to eat versus what it actually gets to eat. You know what I mean? It's kind of like what you need versus what you get. And in the animal kingdom, there's tons of research in the protein to energy ratio of your diet. That's basically how much protein you're eating for how much non-protein energy or carbs and fats. Uh, Another way to frame it would be the nitrogen component of your diet, versus which is protein, versus the carbon component of your diet, which is fats and carbohydrates. They're both carbon energy sources. So it's kind of a nitrogen to carbon ratio or a protein to non-protein energy ratio. And it's just a huge big deal in the animal world because every organism's going to um, seek out a certain balance there. And it's going to have the optimum performance at a certain level there, and then you can artificially constrain that by just giving, um, you know, an organism like donuts, for example. Let's say, and it just really screws up the program. Then this organism has to make a compromise: am I going to overeat fat to get enough protein, or am I going to undereat protein to avoid eating too much fat? And you have to kind of pick your poison. And it sort of sucks either way. Your performance is going to be down, and your uh, reproduction is going to be down, and your lifespan might be down. There, there are trade offs. You know what I mean? So, <clears throat> if you, uh, there are a lot of animal studies where they just provide animals with a pure protein source and then a pure energy source, either carbs or fats or both. And the organism is going to eat a little bit of one, a little bit of the other, and they basically can kind of get to where they need to be. Um, the problem with humans is that. We've diluted the food supply so bad that every choice you reasonably have is low in protein, right? Well, you're not going to eat any meat because that's got saturated fat and cholesterol in it. We know that clogs your arteries. (laughs) So now, you know, and you know you're supposed to eat a plant-based diet because if you don't, you must hate the environment or whatever um, or you hate animals. So like, okay, now, you know, all these plant foods are just massively protein diluted. And you're you're kind. Of, you just don't have a chance. You know what I mean. And this is uh, this is. I think I think the studies are there in the animal kingdom, and just nobody's brought this to humans the way they really need to.
1: I'm trying, Ted. Hey, um, <laughs> <laughs> let me let me ask you a, a question because what, what would you just. If you had to throw out a ballpark pick, what would you say is a pretty good range for protein for human beings? I know we kind of talked about hunter gatherers. I suspect you're going to say around thirty percent, but um, but what about you know, protein causes cancer? Protein stimulates mTOR. I mean, we've talked about this on the show before, but I would like to hear your thought on that. I don't have my thoughts. I've been public about that, but what are your thoughts on on you know people telling us no, we don't eat. We need less protein. You know, we need to eat point, you know, eight grams, you know, per per kilogram maximum. And, you know, that sort of that sort of scenario. And then also, you know, the other thing is, uh, you know, protein's going to it's going to burn out your kidney. Your kidneys are going to have to work too hard. I know you talked about, you know, it's kidney damage is. Well, I'll let you say it. Go ahead and talk about those things.
2: Yeah. OK. So first of all, the protein cancer and protein longevity, uh, we don't have data in humans. We don't have data in carnivores we don't have data in apex predators if someone could show me any sort of data um i would love to see it but it just doesn't
1: exist like there's literally go yeah. ahead um, there's yeah, literally there's, nothing yeah i asked that question and somebody showed me a dog study I said, well dogs are carnivores and i looked at what they fed them and they fed them dog chow and they <laughs> said well they when, right. they, when they restricted or when they restricted their calories of dog chow they live longer i said well that that's not a carnivore oh time, yeah so yeah, so it's exactly. kind of.
2: Exactly. All these restriction diets are comparing to chow, which is abject garbage. And so it's just embarrassing. Like, you know, nobody's going to come up with a study that shows that extreme protein restriction is useful in apex predators or in carnivores or in Homo sapiens. It's just not going to be out there. And, and honestly, we have a long term ongoing study in extremely low protein diets. Right now, and it's called geriatrics because adults uh, age 70 79 in this country eat 66 grams of protein a day. And I'll tell you what, it's really not working out well for their sarcopenia and their osteopenia and their uh, longevity. It's, it's kind of a, a nightmare. So I think uh, I know what happens when you restrict protein because we all know exactly what happens when you restrict protein, you get low bone density, you get low muscle density mass. And uh, the weaker you are, the faster you're going to die, plain and simple. So I just I really think there's no data there. The kidney thing is 100% mythical. There's absolutely no data anywhere that says that a high-protein diet harms your kidneys. We have zero case studies in the bodybuilding community, which means it's absolutely impossible for high-protein to damage your kidneys. Uh, there are all kinds of studies and meta-analyses that completely refute the thought that high protein is bad for your kidneys. Even in kidney failure, protein restriction being beneficial is almost completely mythical. Um, The vast majority of chronic kidney disease is high blood pressure and diabetes, and and in none of these people has protein restriction ever been found to be beneficial. There's a tiny subset of uh, primary glomerular disease, which is less than 7% of all chronic kidney disease. In women, protein restriction was not beneficial at all. In men, there was possibly a low single digits improvement with protein restriction. So like maybe 7% of all chronic kidney disease, there's maybe uh, a few percent of just men who might benefit from protein restriction. But there are other studies that were equivocal and said that it's They basically didn't see a difference there. So honestly, protein restriction in chronic kidney disease is is nearly mythical, and protein causing kidney damage is just a giant load of crap.
1: Yeah, I think that, I mean, it may come from nephrotic syndrome, you know, where people spill protein and they, they associate that with damage, but it's, just a, it's right. just a, again, it's an association. We have so many of those associations with medicine where something's associated with a disease and we all, all of a sudden attribute cause to that. And I think that's a an ongoing problem with a lot of things, you know, cholesterol being one of many. Um, yeah. Let me ask you, Ted, here's, a, here's, a, here's an interesting question, because you know you've been in you know in and out of the ketogenic world you know you and i both disagree with you know and ben Bickman's on here saying we don't need to be, have people drinking oil or chugging butter you know we just we just i think there's very little nutrient uh benefit to doing that and all you're doing is sticking a bunch of energy and you may or may not need i know some people do it to prolong fast and i know some of the rationale but i, I think it's net negative for anything long term um there are people that swear by an extremely high-fat diet, and a lot of them seem to do pretty well. Conversely, there are people, you know yourself included, that say that you know a diet that is low in carbohydrates, higher in protein, and moderates fat is better. Why do we have a difference between some people that do better with one versus another? Is there a metabolic marker or some sort of way to sort these people out and say, who do you think is gonna do better on the high-fat approach? Who's going to do better on a more, you know, higher protein approach? Is there a way to to figure that out?
2: Wow. Okay, so to be totally honest, I, I don't think anybody knows for sure, but I will tell you that in my clinical practice, on a regular basis, I see people on strict ketogenic diets who are completely stalled out like they're... Uh, they eat absolutely no carbs, and they're way fatter than they want to be. I see diabetics whose blood sugar stops going down. I see people uh, who their waist circumference stops going down. I've seen people gain 50, 60 pounds on a strict ketogenic diet. I'm talking food logs and ketone readings, and the, the fact is— as soon as you restrict carbs, you become very fat adapted. You become good at burning fat. That's great. But if the amount of fat you eat every day exceeds the amount of fat you burn, you are literally going to gain weight and your blood sugar is going to go up if you've exceeded your personal fat threshold. I've had diabetics come in and their A1C has gone up uh, several percentages on a strict ketogenic diet. Um, on the so Okay, so I know that it's possible to eat too much fat and personally i think it's because their protein to fat ratio is too low so they're overeating um you know i i admit i could be wrong and maybe these people just you know uh have some sort of food addiction or overeating for other reasons other behavioral reasons but i think most of the time it's a protein to energy ratio on the flip side i have nobody who's come in and had any sign that they were eating, quote, too much protein. You know what I mean? Uh, I I mean, I know, you know, Jimmy Moore recently did this high protein thing and he had some hypoglycemic issues. I haven't really seen that in clinical practice. I haven't really had anyone come in and tell me, okay, now I'm eating too much protein. You know what I mean? I just don't see that. Um, I see the opposite. I see a lot of people upping their protein intake and losing weight uh improving body composition so and, and I also know what happens to patients in our bariatric surgery department when we put them on a diet of nothing but protein like they lose weight like crazy they, they lose weight almost um identical to the weight loss from bariatric surgery itself i mean it's absolutely crazy so i, I yeah i don't think there's such thing as too much protein um, I I will admit that there could be some edge cases that I'm just not seeing personally, you know. Uh, But I definitely know you can eat too much fat. That is a thing.
1: Let me, you know, I know there's some protein overfeeding studies out there. I know guys like Jose Antonio has done a couple of them recently, and I know you're aware of those studies and. You know, you've talked about you know adding you know 200 grams of protein on top of a diet with no effect on increasing body fat, even though that's a you know it's an 800 calorie bump in their in their intake, which is significant. There is a theoretical you know I've read about a theoretical protein threshold for human beings, and that's more in the you know the anthropologic literature that you talk that 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 it's talked about saying that you know man you know traditionally couldn't eat more than about 35 percent protein long term without without having problems and i don't know if there's any issues with that i know from you know i'll start from personal experience for me and i eat a lot plenty of protein believe me i don't have problems you know when i eat to satiety you know but when i you know and i I just wonder you know because you 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 know you're gonna you're gonna you're gonna you're gonna have issues with you know getting rid of the, the the extra nitrogen sometimes if you're not utilizing it you, know, you gotta turn into urea and you've you got to excrete it. And so is there a point where you're just wasting the protein and, and and again real food versus protein powder. Now I could you know I can eat four or five five hundred grams of protein a day in steak and, and that's and I can do it and that's fairly challenging, you know, and I, I I often do that, but I could probably easily eat much more than that if I just made it in protein powders. You know, if I just you know I I could chug probably you know I could probably do a thousand grams of protein in one day via protein powder because the satiety effect is, is much different in, in my experience. Do you, what do you think about protein being wasted?
2: Well, I mean, I have like some crazy I, – I have these crazy studies. I had this crazy study of, uh, you know, ketogenic cyclists um, just drinking liquid protein and getting 80% of their calories from liquid protein. I'm talking over 600 grams of protein a day and just – oxidizing it all and literally biking for hours and fueling their rides just oxidizing protein and these people were basically fine they didn't have any problems deaminating this protein or excreting it they didn't have an ammonia buildup. they didn't die or anything like that um, i'm not saying that's a great idea it, and i also don't know how they felt subjectively you know but the the point is like you're you're gonna really have a hard time finding somebody who's eating, quote, too much protein unless something's really wrong with them. You know, there are uh, people who have genetic, genetically inherited problems where they can't eat certain types of protein or amounts of protein. Uh, but they're definitely edge cases. So I think for the most part, you're just not going to get into trouble from protein. The other thing is every protein overfeeding study, it's just ridiculous. Lean mass goes up energy expenditure goes up fat mass does not go up so uh, protein's kind of magical i mean protein makes the whole calorie idea look extremely stupid because you can massively overfeed protein and i you know lean mass and energy go up and i like i kind of like both those things so that's that's really not it's not necessarily a bad thing in my opinion um and it's almost impossible to get fat from overeating protein because it's just so energy. Uh, the it's unfavorable energetically, so it's just almost never happens.
0: Yeah, you kind of you kind of danced around an answer to the question I was going to ask uh, that uh, um, I think is kind of interesting and what I've been thinking about and uh, like m- one of my. The, it's a goofy question, in my opinion, because I don't necessarily think my lifestyle is something that people should kind of like aim for, or certainly not if their main 100% goal is to be as healthy as humanly possible. Uh, you know, running ultra marathons, running 100-mile races and things like that, it's, I see it as more or less an uphill battle, and I'm doing everything I can to try to stay as healthy as possible in the presence of what I consider kind of, you know, a margin of diminishing returns, certainly when it comes to cardiovascular exercise. Um, so like what my thought is, and I always try to kind of figure out is when I'm just at rest, you know, I have like a resting metabolic rate and then there's days where I'm burning two to three times that. So like my thought originally was always that as my energy expenditure increases, my protein demands probably also increase, but not at the same rate as the energy demand. Do you think that that's just kind of more or less a myth as well? Or do you think like would i want my in, my protein to increase at the same rate as energy so essentially could i eat if i did like a carnivore diet like Sean, could i just double down on that much more like fatty meat products or you know something like ribeye which is about a 70 30% fat to protein ratio
2: i think that if you're metabolically healthy and you have metabolic flexibility you could do anything you wanted to get those extra energy calories mm-hmm. you could burn um, protein if you wanted to or you could add in more fat or even carbs and burn those. The, uh, the thing with protein is the thermic effect of food is so high that you're really only getting about three calories per gram if you're just strictly eating protein instead of four you know for carbs and nine for fat. So then you've got a volumetric problem. so if you're just tr- if you're trying to run all day, on protein and you're only getting 3 calories per gram and you have to chew that stuff a lot <laughs> it's just not that convenient you know you'd be better off just just drinking, you know, any kind of fat or carbs or just uh, anything else would be an energetic upgrade, probably. So I think you could do whatever you wanted, and we certainly have studies on um, endurance athletes l- literally just running their whole race on protein. Um, so you could do that, but I think that energetically that would be unfavorable, and probably nobody's r- winning any races by just drinking mm-hmm. whey powder. <laughs> I would agree. <laughs> I don't. Yeah. <laughs>
1: What, Ted, let me ask you another question about, uh, you know, you said you had some people that you saw that had some folate issues that were long-term carnivorous. Was that something you saw clinically or was it lab value issues or, you know, cause it's something I, you know, I've been doing this for a year, a year and a half, a little more. And I've, I've got a lot of people that, that I've seen anecdotally have done it for, you know, decades or more. And they don't seem to have any clinical issues. And I certainly, I understand that, you know, Folate is not heavily found in meat, and you know if it comes up lower, you know I guess folate is mostly made by bacteria in our gut. I think 80% of our folate is it comes through micro microorganisms in our gut. At least that's what I'm I've read. So I, what 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 did you see as far as issues with with the few long-term people you'd seen as far as uh, clinical issues? Were they having you know megaloblastic anemia or ulcers or anything that would give you a clinical issue?
2: So I've I've seen a lot of people who've gone on the carnivore challenge, right? Um, You know, 30 days, 90 days. I have people coming in doing labs before, during, after. Um, And and almost universally, it's just been a massive win. Like everybody feels great. They look great. Their labs are great. Um, It just seems like a massive upgrade over whatever they're eating before. But I've had just like two people now. Who who kept doing? It. They're like this is so great. I'm gonna do it for you know six months, nine months, not quite a year, but getting close. And then these people, um, the people I was talking about, came in basically just came in complaining of fatigue and had uh, nothing on physical exam that I could that would point to anything bad. And so I just lab these people up and did a bunch of blood tests. Cause this is really uncharted territory for me. I have no clue what could happen. Right. And so I just, I just, you know, shotgun lab these people and did notice a couple people with, uh, w- what the lab would call very low folate levels. And I don't have any idea the causality of that. You know what I mean? Like, I, uh, would if I if I shotgun labbed all my non- carnivores and checked their folate levels, they'd probably be just as low or I might be even more horrified. I don't know. Um, could it have been some factor just unique to these individuals? As um, uh, sure, absolutely. I have no clue. All I know is I've seen a ton of winning on zero carb carnivore diets and I've seen one or two people, who said they were tired and and the only thing I could find wrong with them is a low folate level and I don't even know if that's clinically significant and so that's all I've got like I literally have no clue what's up with that I just uh, nothing
1: yeah that's actually because I did a poll and you know and again the people will, 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 will say that's not science and I asked around and I said you know out of several hundred respondents if anyone had any you know clinical evidence of folate deficiency which you know, you can define how you want to do that. But they they didn't seem to show up, but it's interesting when you talk about shotgunning labs because you know if we take a hundred people and, and we do that and we run a bunch of labs on them, what are, what is the percent? What are the odds that many of those people are going to have lab values that fall outside of the norm? I mean, that's I mean, it's almost guaranteed.
2: Oh yeah, yeah. Like you're just going to have you know false positive and negatives all over the board or, or things that are abnormal that aren't clinically significant and to to be honest i'm not even supposed to just do a million lab tests on people and look for a number that's off but in this situation i was doing that because i really had nothing else to go on i just had no clue at all
1: yeah that i mean that concept because i i keep i get people sending me their lab values and they ask me about this and that and you know they send me they get these whole panels because you know people can do it themselves now so they order this you know panel with, you know, 75 labs and you'll have 10 that are abnormal and they start freaking out about it And you're just like there's no clinical context there. You know, you have I guess people don't understand that it's it's extremely normal for these Often for these labs to be outside of normal ranges in many cases and it's not necessarily uh, Something you have to immediately freak out and address
2: Yeah, I mean I like that's so true. I see crazy weird lab abnormalities all the time that I frequently I just blow off because I think, you know, it's probably meaningless. And so I, I take all of that with a huge grain of salt. Um, I don't know if that's significant or not, I got to admit. And I will say now, I know that you personally, everyone was freaked out about your A1C and your testosterone. And to be honest, all the carnivores that I saw had actually really – low a1c's like really good like uh and then you know basically high normal testosterone so i I don't know i don't know if you're just doing that yourself with with your athletic stuff or what like but that didn't seem to happen on these zero carb carb carnivore diets that i saw
1: yeah i mean and that's and that's the same thing i've seen i've seen seen literally all, you know, hundreds and hundreds of labs people send me And, Yes, the normal situation is their their A1C falls, but we had a we just did a podcast and we released it the other day. Alessandro Ferretti, and he has actually seen uh, glucose numbers on some really high level athletes, and they are surprisingly seeing you know pre diabetic and diabetic range glucose, and he's really top level athletes. He said mm-hmm. it was typically in a load phase, and he typically saw it in the athletes engaged in you know, kind of the sprinting type activity, you know, kind of similar to what I'm doing. And so I think there is, you know, some unique physiology going on, probably driven by the silliness I'm doing with the athletic stuff more than anything else. And, you know, like I said, when people, it's kind of funny, because I get accused of, you know, well, your testosterone is low. And at the same time, they turn around and accuse me of taking steroids, which I think is <laughs> just <laughs> completely, you know, comically. You know? So, but you know, yeah. I took, i i had my testosterone lab drawn. I said, "Well, that's good. i was actually happy it was low because I could—I could make this point that look, you have to put things into clinical context, and you know, and then I took it a week later. It was hundred points higher, still on the low side, but I was just like, look, no one is walking around and sees me is going to accuse me of being low testosterone. But you have to—you have to sit there and say, take things into clinical context, take the whole picture into the, in the, in, in the, the equation."
2: Well, and what I see clinically is you, uh, males can nuke their testosterone just in a day or two with extreme athletic stuff. I've got guys doing Ironman and they'll come in the next day with a testosterone of 100. Like, I mean, it's just your body's like, oh, this is not a good time to reproduce because I just ran from a tiger for like 100 miles. <laughs> so it, it, it transiently will just absolutely nuke your testosterone, e- either being hypocaloric like an aesthetic athlete or just doing a bunch of stuff. Uh, so I, I think, yeah, I, I didn't really read too much into that. Yeah, I wasn't I
1: wasn't I wasn't concerned about it. There's a study and in, in Jeff Volick participated, in, he wasn't a lead author, but he did a study on looking at guys on a high protein, low carbohydrate diet, and their resting or fasting testosterone, I guess it was resting testosterone, the early morning AM testosterone was relatively low, but they had a post exercise response which was extremely normal. And so again, as you know, testosterone responds to the stimulus around. And so they had, even though they were, their diet seemed to impact that. So high protein, low carbohydrate diet, And that, that case showed a relatively low fasting testosterone or resting testosterone, but there was their testosterone levels in response to exercise was excellent. So that's another sort of just kind of interesting study that's out there. Yeah.
0: And to huh, add, interesting. to add to that too, like, I think sometimes people get so like, I, I understand the, the intrigue of like you know diving into the numbers and you know I've certainly done that myself but at the end of the day when you get like to a point where i think your your body is working with you it tells you some of these things very clearly so like when you describe with the, the, the really low t scores post ironman stuff it's like you know i can i can guarantee you like i could probably predict uh, after a big effort how i feel if my t lows are if my t scores are going to be low or not um Mm -hmm. and it's like it's just it's like you said it's the it's a product of what you've done like if you go out and run all day or cycle all day or do anything all day that's really physically active um you're gonna feel that kind of you know low t type of you know uh uh, feeling and then you know my sign is always like when i when i get like that if i do a big workout or do a race it's like okay that's my body sign saying time to rest and recover so like when sean kind of reports back and says Okay, these blood values say this, but I feel great. It's like, well, your body's telling you what's going on here. It's not, it's not this big enigma or this, you know, weird thing that he should be like, you know, super concerned about.
1: Well, I mean, it, yeah. it's it's a, it's a snapshot of what was going on at nine a.m. on January fifteenth for you know for half an hour. I mean, it's not you know you know again you got to look at the whole big big picture. Ted, we would be I would probably get yelled at if I don't discuss this with you because there's so many people that kind of are interested in this topic your exercise routine you follow a minimalist you know hit style and i say hit style i mean high intensity training not high intensity interval training uh of, tr- of of working out where it's all body weight stuff you know you're able to have a you know a very aesthetic muscular physique doing that can you go into into why you do that and how that's working out for you and what your current training is like
2: oh yeah sure absolutely so Basically, I have all these patients who, you know, they they're working two jobs just to pay the rent. Right. They're working, you know, 80 hours a week. They have no money. They have no time and they can't. You know, and I'm like, okay, you need to exercise. And for them, that means you have to buy a gym membership and then you have to put on your workout clothes and then you have to pack your workout bag and then you have to drive to the gym and then you have to get a locker and then you have to change your clothes and then you have to let you know like the like there's just this ridiculous amount of things that everybody assumes you have to do to work out. Right. You have to have equipment and barbells and trainers and classes and all this stuff. Stuff. and and the, the the reality is that you could hit your absolute maximum genetic muscular potential just putting the maximum amount of tension on all your muscles that you possibly can you just have to generate this progressive rate of muscular energy output throughout your body with like pushing and pulling and leg exercises so i what I'm doing is experimenting with the absolute minimum effective dose for exercise. And I want to democratize resistance exercise. So you need no time and no equipment and no nothing. Right. So I've just completely dumbed it down to basically just pushing, pulling and leg exercises. Um, that That's kind of this big three, right? You do some sort of maximum effort pushing exercise, like a push up, some sort of maximum effort pulling exercise, like a pull up or a row, and some sort of leg exercise like a, a body weight squat or a lunge or a pistol squat. And if you go, I like high intensity training because if you're trying to do this in the minimum amount of time, you have to absolutely go to failure. That's the only way to be as efficient as possible. So my technique is basically one set every day to failure with some rest, pause, failure extension sets on top of that. You know what I mean? Like I'll do 10 pull-ups and go all the way to failure. Um, sort of a, I, I try to do like a triple failure well where I fail on the concentric and then I When I can't concentric anymore, I hold it isometrically and then fail on that. And then I have to go eccentric. And I try to fail on the eccentric as well. So I'm doing like this one set to triple failure, concentric, then isometric, then eccentric. Then I rest for 10 seconds, do another set to failure, and I try to do basically one set with four more rest pauses afterwards. Um, The whole thing takes maybe two minutes for a pulling exercise, like a pull-up you know, two minutes for a pushing exercise like a push-up. Uh, two to four minutes for for me. I have to do pistol squats on you know each leg one at a time, and then if I if I want to do more workout, I do a push exercise. I mean uh, overhead pushing um like a pressing motion like a handstand push-up or a pike push up so I get an overhead press in there. Sometimes I'll do anterior and posterior chain. Anterior chain would be leg lifts, sit-ups, V sits, uh something like L sits. Um posterior chain would be uh Superman's or back bends or anything where I'm working the, the back the muscles in the back half of my body. And so basically every day I do six moves push, pull, legs, press, anterior chain, posterior chain, single set all the way to triple failure, and then a couple rest pause sets on top of that just to really, um, you know, just to maximize the effective reps there. And uh, this is like so efficient. I mean, I, I really tried to just make it the absolute lowest time investment you can get, time and equipment for the absolute maximum muscular hypertrophy and I don't know if I've if I've hit that or not but that's my goal that's what I'm doing that's what I'm trying to do that's that's definitely
0: probably music's the ears of the time consume or time time demanding lifestyles for sure and to know you know it's always interesting to me like you go to the gym and you'll see people hopping on these these machines that cost god knows how much money and it's like isolating this one individual muscle and then they'll spend you know three sets of whatever reps and then two three minutes between to rest on that one machine doing that one isolated muscle and then they move to the next and it's like it's no wonder these workouts take two hours long um and then you look at like kind of what you're doing where it's you know i think sometimes people hear body weight and they think oh that's just like you know, high rep, you know, low weight, but really, you know, you position your body in the right way and move the right way. And and you can make that very kind of low rep, high weight if you're kind of moving in a way that is, uh, gonna kind of generate that stuff. And uh, some of those like pulling, especially pull up style, like workouts are, you know, those, those are tough to, to do at a really high rep rate for most people
2: yeah and and then i basically i'm working on uh one arm pull-ups one arm push-ups and single leg squats just to make it more difficult uh takes a little bit longer because you got to do one of them at a time but uh you're never you're never going to get to the point where that's too easy like there's no nobody on earth who finds one arm pull-ups too easy you know what i mean you're not going to have to load that up with weights you're just not
1: Yeah, I'm not for sure. I can tell you that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, like I literally know
2: no humans who can do a one-arm chin-up. So it's it's. I I mean, there are people who can, but you just don't run into them every day.
1: Yeah, that's 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 pretty impressive to be able to do that. Hey, what do you? But let's talk about because there's there's a cardiovascular component. Do you do anything cardiovascular-wise? Do you do any sprinting, running? I know you do ultimate frisbee a little bit. or is that even important? Do we need to worry about that?
2: Um, I think you do. Like, So I like to throw in some sort of brief cardio sprint uh, to to absolute maximum effort as well. And I think that's crucial. And, um, you know, I, I'm addicted to Ultimate Frisbee. Like literally my whole life is just about Ultimate Frisbee. Like <laughs> the doctor thing and the diet thing. These are just, you know, the playing base. This is all nothing compared to Ultimate Frisbee. That's pretty much my my, you know, my favorite thing in the world. So I'm addicted to that. And it's basically just sprinting. It's the, it's really the most running of any team sport because it's, you're on a soccer or a football field, but you can huck the disc the entire length of the field and everybody runs all the way down and back over and over, you know, so I'll play for an hour and that's, you know, six or seven miles of sprinting. And, uh, so I, I do that. And if I, am not playing for some reason I will literally just do sprints on um just running up a hill uh jump rope uh that kind of thing you know my uh my wife has been dragging me to Orange Theory Fitness lately where just for an hour you just do sprints on a rowing machine a treadmill and uh, uh, that sort of thing that's really not my favorite but I I just do that because she really enjoys that and you know, if I wasn't sprinting there, I'd probably just be sprinting somewhere up a hill. But I think it's important, and I do like that high-intensity, brief bouts of cardio. Um, I'm not signing up for any hundred-mile yeah. races like Zach, though.
1: <laughs> That's crazy. Hey, I I, I kind of have this, you know. It, it's a, you know, and I, we talk about how to assess people's health, and one thing I talk about is. You know, I just throw this arbitrarily out. How fast can you run 100 meters? You know, and I I arbitrarily said 15 seconds. Okay. And the reason I chose that was the world record for an 85 year old man is about 15 seconds. So if, you know, I'm 51, if I can't beat an 85 year old man, then there's a problem. And I, you know, and what I look at is. What is preventing me from running 100 meters in 15 seconds? And so you can look at the things that that prevent you from doing that. If you're too big, you know, you're too fat, you're not going to be able to do it. So that's a problem. You know, if your joints don't work, you know, that's a problem. And I think, and we just had Gary Fetke on the show, but we both agree that diet has a huge impact. You probably see that too in your patients. When you fix their diet, a lot of times their musculoskeletal complaints go away. You know, Mm -hmm. the other thing is a lack of strength. You know, you got to be strong enough. And have enough strength weight ratio to move down the field, you know, move down the track fast enough. And then just to, this, the 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 ability and, you know, to move and, and the flexibility to do those things. And I think, you know, again, we can't as doctors put everybody on the starting line and say go run 100 meters. But I think we did. And we found all those people that, you know, could run 100 meters in 15 seconds and said these guys are healthy and going to live longer. And compared to the ones that couldn't do that, I think that, that, would, that would, you know – very c- quickly sort people out because you know in nature you get which ant like we talked about it you get skinny you get weak you get frail you die and i think it's the same thing in humans but we, we you know we're not being chased by predators or at least hopefully we're not but you know again that 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 is just you know an arbitrary metric that'll never get tested but but i think it's a pretty good metric what do you what, is there something similar that you think about something like that
2: <laughs> yeah yeah I, I i honestly i i have this like horrible fantasy of taking all my patients and just dumping him off on this, uh, uh, I don't know if you watch the TV show, The Arrow, but this guy got shipwrecked (laughs) for five years on Leon Yu, this island in the North China Sea that's like extremely unhospitable, and he basically had to just hunt wild boar and birds and engage in hand-to-hand combat on this prison island for five years just to survive, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And sometimes I see these people, and I just want to just dump them off on this, island with a spear and a loincloth and then just come back in five years and you know see who's left and you you know that by then they'd just be carved out of solid granite right it's like you know these people would be pretty much bulletproof and and I I I, so I love the the hundred meter yard I mean the 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 hundred yard dash like as a metric for health I think that's brilliant I think that's that's the kind of thing we should be doing. I mean, we have a really low budget version of that called the get up and go test for Medicare. Uh, you know, people over the age of sixty five, we we time how fast they can get up out of a chair and walk and like do they have to use their arms to try to drag their frail, kyphotic, sarcopenic, osteopenic body out of the chair or their wheelchair and just shuffle across the room. So We're doing like a horrible, low budget version of that—the just getting out of a chair, walking across the room. But I I like the hundred yard dash way better. (laughs) Excellent.
1: Yeah, you know, I was looking through this, and Canada actually has a pretty good, you know, assessment of fit of health. You know, they've got a Canadian program. You know, surprisingly, Canada leads us in a lot of things. You know, for for common sense and some with regard to medicine, but they they do have a pretty decent program out there i don't think anybody actually uses it but but that stuff is is, is is down there i don't know how you you know like i said you know there's proxy measures there's a dynamometer grip strength stuff that i've got one in my house i play with everyone once in a while but you know you've got all these proxy measures which we never use and i think it's it's a shame we don't do that i think you know it's 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 just it's so much easier to you know get their blood pressure take their bmi send them for a bunch of labs have them come back in and then you know, and then hand them their whatever, you know, their prescription or their pat on the back or, you know, something like that. And I don't think we really we, we, we really fall down on, on, on assessing health in my view. But I don't know. Oh, if you're, yeah. No, you're
2: absolutely that. right. Like it's uh, I, I do all the 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 physical exams for the Seattle Fire Department uh, recruits, the new people coming in. And, you know, we're, we have these people. Um, you know, running at a really high incline and doing push ups and all this stuff. And if you're not like super fit, you're just not getting in. And I compare these candidates to like the average person who just walks in the clinic and it's just it's pretty sad. You're right. like I, I you, know, we, you know, your Medicare physical should have like a rope climb and some muscle ups and a concept two rower. <laughs> it should be a hundred yard dash for sure uh that i mean can you imagine like if if all your patients ate a 30 protein diet and worked out every day doing resistance training and some sprints i mean like
1: i'd be out of a job i would yeah, totally I was be say, out of a job you, would, you <laughs> wouldn't have any patients that's the deal no. i mean that's the deal you wouldn't have any patients but we, yeah. we kind of and the sad thing you know in the u.s we're the richest country in the world we have more resources than anyone else you know we could easily you know, we, we have the the, the resources to, to have a, a populace that could be like that. And it's just kind of very, very frustrating to see that we're, if anything, we're the complete opposite of that.
0: Well, and the, the thing that I always think of, too, is like, uh, I guess I'm just old enough to remember the presidential physical fitness challenge that you do in like middle school, I guess, at the first time. I don't think they do that yep. anymore. At least they didn't when I was a teacher myself. And, uh, you know, as a kid, you're kind of like, okay this is cool but you don't really know what what is all going into it but then when you kind of step back and look at that now you're like oh that's what they were thinking and it's like we've gotten away from that and it's it's unfortunate because they were pretty much right on the money in terms of like what we should be kind of assessing in terms of uh the types of like movements that our bodies are intended to do well if we're healthy and we're heading in the right direction
2: yeah it's probably like too dangerous or something we don't do it anymore (laughs) No more monkey bars. They took those all out of the. <laughs> I know, right? It's yeah, that's sad.
1: What Ted? I mean, there's a, there's several things that go into uh, you know having someone become healthy. You know, if you take someone that's sick, diet, exercise, sleep, stress reduction. You know, the lifestyle measures. What? How would what, how would you rank those in order of importance? Or can you?
2: Oh well, okay. So <clears throat> honestly. Uh, You know, I I always think diet's the most important because, you know, about 80% of your body composition is is dietary. But then again, I see people who've been in the ICU for two weeks, and they can't even walk up one flight of stairs. Like, they have to learn how to walk again. And I'm like, damn, this sedentary thing just kills you. You put somebody in a cast for six weeks? Mm. I mean, their freaking leg circumference is half the other side. It's just Ridiculous. So, like, I, I feel like the activity piece is almost bigger than the diet because if you just ate crap for two weeks, you're basically going to look and perform the same. Let's be honest. You know, if you just ate garbage for two weeks, uh, you know, it wouldn't be a huge big deal. But if you literally laid in bed without moving for two weeks, uh, you know, that's just like somebody's going to have to help you walk out of the hospital. You're going to be in the wheelchair getting wheeled out of the hospital. So, I almost don't think you can uh, disentangle the two. It's like diet and exercise just have to go hand in hand, and it's just a straight 50-50 for me. Um, you know, I'm giving them both the exact same importance uh, because you know, I see people who are inactive and have low muscle, they, they literally have one mitochondria left in their body. right? When you're down to one mitochondria... Does it freaking matter whether it's burning fat versus carbs? Like, okay, sure you're fat adapted, but you've got one mitochondria. So, I'm like, damn, you have to do both these things at the same time. You have to be have to be increasing your lean mass and your mitochondrial density with exercise, and you have to dial in your diet because, you know, the 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 modern diet is just basically killing off the entire planet. So they're they're huge, and what's funny to me is that I see this huge spectrum of humanity in my clinic. I might see some fire-breathing crossfitter who looks like he's carved out of solid granite and has the best labs you've ever seen in your life, and then five minutes later, I see some frail, elderly, kyphotic um, person who's just—their body is literally just disintegrating, and literally, the only difference between these two phenotypes is diet and exercise, period. That's it. That's it. It's diet and exercise. And it's not necessarily one, more one or versus the other. I think it's really both hand in hand. And uh, you just have to nail both of those levers in order to be even remotely healthy. I just, you know, I feel really strongly about it. And so my whole mission is is just helping people... Dial in the diet and the exercise as simply as possible. Like, I just want to dumb it down to as few things as, as I can.
1: Well, you know, the, the diet I, I, I sort of promote is, is obviously the dumbest you can get. I mean, it's as simple <laughs> as you can possibly get. But, you know, and I agree wholeheartedly with you about the exercise. You know, I'm, I'm a huge proponent of exercise, obviously. The only caveat I sometimes see is that sometimes people, you know, if they jump into exercise – too early mm. they sometimes get hurt and i and i think there is i think there is a tissue quality factor that diet impacts if you're eating you know you know slushies from 7-eleven and twinkies and vegetable oil i think that negatively impacts your tissue quality and i do see sometimes see people getting injured when they try to you know turn the lever on for exercise full way so i think sometimes it makes sense to you know get that nutrition in order at least as a start. And and then you can start to, 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 to add that in. But I do agree long-term they're both crucial and they're, they're very important for everyone.
2: Yeah. Yeah. No, I know, I know what you're saying. And, and I'm sure that at this point in your career, you've gotten the point where you can just look at somebody and tell how likely they are to rupture their Achilles or rupture their patellar tendon. You can just kind of feel the, the global health of their connective tissue. Uh, just because they've just eaten a toxic slurry of omega-6 oils and sugar their whole life, and uh, you know the linoleic acid percentage of their connective tissues or whatever it happens to be, the glycation is just you know going to be through the roof. And and you basically know who's going to come in with the uh, tennis elbow and the plantar fasciitis and the Achilles tendon stuff, and the and there's a massive diet factor there. You're absolutely right. I totally agree with that. Um, yeah, there's no denying it.
1: Yeah, it's, it's, it's one of those things that, and I, I am continually amazed, you know, we have, we have, you know, in the low carb community and some, and, and it's starting to get a little more mainstream, people are understanding that, you know, diet, hyperlinks anemia causes or, or is, is very well associated and probably causal to so many other diseases, you know, whether it's diabetes or cardiovascular disease or dementia or, you know, Nephropathy, all these things, and then they kind of leave out the musculoskeletal stuff. And I think that's, to me, insane because to me it's so obvious. And and you know when you read through the orthopedic literature, there's literally no mention whatsoever. You know, it's starting to get a little bit now, but I mean in general, it's it's generally unrecognized that diet has any impact other than if you're obese. You know, oh yeah, if you're obese, you're going to have joint problems, but we don't directly attribute it to the inflammatory nature of, of, of the of the conditions and you know gary and gary Fick and i talked about that there's other you know folks in the community that are starting to recognize this but i think it's a huge thing and the number of people that i have seen report that their arthritis pain dramatically or completely went away long before they lost any weight is is staggering and i think that is a huge win to include things like rheumatoid arthritis and psoriatic arthritis and all these, you know, wildly inflammatory autoimmune diseases. So I think there's just so much there that, that you know, we, we, we've we ignored for so long, and hopefully it'll come to, uh, you know, more people's attention and we can kind of fix this problem.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And I've definitely seen people, you know, with bone-on-bone x-rays who canceled their joint replacement because it just doesn't hurt anymore when they change their diet. And, you know, you've probably seen that way more than I have but I've it's weird once you once you learn some of this stuff it's it's like the scene in the matrix where you can kind of see see what's really going on and it's just like you're like holy crap all these diseases are you know diet and exercise it's it's just uh, I, I think, again, in the animal kingdom, they've known this forever. Like, you know, every pork farmer knows not to feed their pigs too much soybean oil or soybeans because you'll get soft pork where, like, literally the the, the pork belly just flops over and the birth strength of the tendons is lower and the connective tissue is weaker. And it's just like a soft, uh, fragile blob. And... Uh, you know every farmer will tell you that but like you know and vets know this stuff too but then you know humans are like we're clueless we have no idea we really think that there's no connection between what we eat and our health like just nobody has any idea it's it's crazy
0: yeah it's interesting when you look at the farming practice and stuff it's uh like when you really get into like a real like you know farm and the amount of like science and just technology they put behind like you know formulating everything for for those animals uh Mm -hmm. is it's it's uh it's pretty eye-opening and then yeah like you said you you come to the human population and we're rolling into you know convenience stores buying you know packaged candy bars and sodas and things like that And it's like it's the polar
1: opposite yet we're supposed to be the intelligent ones (laughs) right Ted, let me because I know you've 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 been on a lot of shows and you've talked about a lot of the stuff. Is there anything you want to talk about that we haven't covered? Because I know there's a lot of stuff that you you have in your wheelhouse. What what else out there do you think people should know? Is there anything else?
2: Well, I think we we've touched on most of it. I mean, really, for me, uh, I've just spent a lot of time reverse engineering obesity. By looking at what causes obesity and it's always this magic formula of high carb and high fat together with lowish protein and so so for me it's basically about um you know doing the exact opposite of that so uh i think that looking at, you know, hunter gatherer protein ratios compared to modern protein ratios and understanding protein dilution and protein leverage is one massive important driver of obesity. And then on the flip side of that is just this frequent high carb, high fat eating carbon fat together all day long. And and to me that that's that's the whole diet piece in a nutshell, and, and I, I can see the appeal of a zero carb carnivore diet because that is the absolute simplest way to raise your protein to energy ratio. I mean, I've I, you know I've I've posted these graphs of the protein to energy ratio of animal foods versus plant foods, and it's it's just like ridiculous. Like all of our low protein to energy foods are plant foods all our problematic foods are plant foods you've got your grains and your sugars and your starches and your vegetable oils and uh so i, I think that's one huge big big deal and then the other thing we touched upon was exercise and really that those are my two areas of focus and I, I can't think of anything on top of that that i really need to get out there
1: I know you said one time, uh, you know, because we have this sort of uh, belief that fiber is this magical compound. And I, I, I will tell you, there are a lot of people that don't do well with fiber. And what are your, what are your thoughts on that? Do you think it's conditional? I think it's conditionally uh, beneficial, you know, depending on what the baseline diet is. And I think it, in some cases, is a problem for people. Do you have any thought on that?
2: Well, okay, fiber is just like your longevity experiment with the chow, right? The chow is so bad that if if your dog doesn't eat the chow, it lives longer. Um, you know, fiber is the same way. If you're eating a bunch of carbohydrates, you better hope to God that it's fiber, hmm. because that's going to be you're going to be so much better off. So I think fiber is great if you're eating a high-carb diet you know if you're uh, on some sort of high-carb vegetarian or vegan diet you better be eating a lot of fiber um i think that um fiber is massively overblown uh everybody i see with inflammatory bowel disease and ulcerative colitis and crohn's and diverticulitis they're they are worse with more fiber um almost universally these people do better and feel better with less fiber um, anytime you have any problem with your colon at all, um, you want to eat as little fiber as possible. The most extreme example of this is people with no colon, like someone who's had a colectomy and has an ostomy bag. Just talk to them about what happens when they eat a lot of fiber. I mean these people are on the lowest fiber diet you've ever seen in order to you know, just feel better and function better. So if anything's wrong with your colon, fiber is just completely bad. So I'm not a huge fiber fan. Um, I think it's been massively overblown. But if you're looking at protein-to-energy ratios and you're eating any kind of carbohydrates, you better hope they're fiber. So in that setting, I like fiber. But it's really just displacing digestible glucose-producing non-fiber carbohydrates. So that's my take on it.
1: Yeah, so I mean basically you're basically saying a high-fiber— carbohydrate source is relatively low in energy so therefore you're going to have a higher protein energy ratio based on that but you know at at the same time we, people that have colon problems are often told eat a high fiber diet eat more fiber in your diet here's a here's a fiber supplement where, where right. does that where where does that come from why do we think that
2: it's it's really not evidence based cuz I I tell you what if you get admitted to the hospital with diverticulitis you're on a low residue diet instantly. Nobody's putting anybody with a colitis flare on any kind of fiber. Like, we have these low residue diets that we put everybody on in the hospital the second they get admitted with a flare up of whatever intestinal problem they've got. I mean, that's the first thing you do is check the little box that says low residue diet. So, like, clearly, fiber is not that great for any of these conditions. You know, I, I just. I really think it only looks good epidemiologically because it's it's a higher protein to energy ratio. If you are eating, let's say for some reason all you've got to eat is plant foods, and you're trying to get the highest protein to energy ratio you can, you're going to want to go with something with fiber um, in it. You know, like, like for example, these uh, again in the animal kingdom, these mountain gorillas. You know, during the winter time, they eat mostly just leaves. And their protein to energy ratio goes way up, and they get leaner, um, and they are eating more fiber, but just sort of incidentally. And then during the summertime, they get the fruiting season, and they eat a whole bunch of carbs, and they eat a whole bunch of fructose, and they gain more weight, and uh, you know their fiber intake's lower, so. I mean, for me, fiber is just a marker of a higher protein to energy ratio, like green vegetables have a very high protein energy ratio. So if, if you're in some situation where all you can eat is plant foods, oh, yeah, you should be definitely eating lots of fiber. Um, but I see that as, as like a second choice to
1: eating animal products. Yeah, it's interesting stuff, Ted. Um, I've got to go debate a vegan <laughs> here a little bit. Of, I, I've signed myself. I'm probably going to regret this. I've signed myself up for some roundtable discussion. But let me – there is – I'm just going to see, see what's going on with you, Ted. I just saw a movie trailer called Food Lies, which you're going to be in. So that's going to be interesting. There's a movie coming out that you're going to be in. Uh, I guess I am too, potentially. But uh, what else is going on <laughs> in, in Ted Naiman land? What else is coming up for you in the near future?
2: Oh wow! Well, I, let's see. I gave a, a talk on protein on the low carb cruise a couple of weeks ago, and that should be on Diet Doctor uh, later this week or next week. Um, and then I'm I'm giving a talk later in the year. But uh, uh, other than that, it's mostly just I'm down in the trenches, you know, at primary care day in day out, just uh,
1: seeing people and and creating some really cool uh, infographics, which is one yeah. Of the <laughs> <ones>. <laughs> Yeah, thanks. I like
0: pictures. Yeah, folks, we'll definitely put the links to, to Ted's channels in the, in the show notes, too, so that you can you can find him. His Twitter account is definitely one worth following.
1: Thanks, man. All right, guys. All right, guys. Well, I'm, I'm going to have to head out of here pretty soon. Um, Ted, thank you so much for coming on. Like I said, it'd be a pleasure to meet you in person, uh, hopefully in the near future.
2: Oh, yeah, yeah. Next time you're uh, up in Issaquah or whatever, just yeah, hit me up, man. That would be great.
1: Yeah, I maybe mean, we go run right around and play some ultimate frisbee, or something. Show me how to yeah, do it. Yeah, come out and play. That'd be excellent. How much contact is allowed in that stuff? <laughs> <laughs> that might Thankfully, be my only lot. advantage. Yeah, <laughs> is, this, is, is a one. position
0: that allows you to hit someone in ultimate frisbee? Is the question Sean's asking. <laughs> yeah, that's
1: so. Um... A, a little, a little jostling here. A little elbow, a little, yeah, there's little... some <laughs> of that. You know, I got to tell you, I miss, when I, used to, I I played high-level rugby, and I'm, I sometimes I'm, I miss those days when you could just. You know, stick an elbow in someone's teeth if they if you didn't like what they were saying. You know, it was kind of Yeah. Don't get to don't get through that stuff too much anymore. All right, man. Yes, All right, guys. Ted. Thank you so much. Thanks again. All
2: right. Thanks, guys. Good talk.
0: Hey folks. Thanks again for tuning in to the Human Performance Outliers podcast. Just a couple quick notes before you leave. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can find us at HPO podcast at gmail.com, that's hpo podcast at gmail.com. We're both also on social media. On Twitter, you can find me at ZBitter, that's at Z B I T T E R. And you can find Sean at S Baker M D, that's at S-B-A-K-E-R-M-D. We're both also on Instagram. Where you can find me at Zach Bitter. That's at Z A C H B I T T E R. And for Sean, it's at Sean Baker 1967. That's at S H A W N B A K E R 1967. Thanks again for tuning in to this episode of the Human Performance Outliers Podcast.